Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plans. Have you ever had to prep a sermon and you just looked at your bookshelf and you didn't have enough of what you needed? Well, you don't have to do that. Go to Logos.com. Logos Bible Software has everything that you need at pretty much at your fingertips because you're literally typing stuff in and with the click of a mouse button, you can open the entire C.H. Spurgeon Library. You can look up original languages, word studies. I mean, this thing is like the Lollapalooza of church planning information. You can have a little mini concert in your sermon prep right there. All the greats kind of gathered around and picking their brains and putting them into your sermon. And you want to check out LogosBibleSoftware.com. They'll actually make you look smarter than you actually are. Welcome to Hardcore Church Planting. This is Peyton Jones. I'm your host on today's podcast and want to start off today by introducing you to a a new author that I've been reading, Karen Swallow Pryor. She is a PhD and she is also an award-winning professor of English at Liberty University. She's the author of Booked, Literature and the Soul, Me and First Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist, and uh, she writes frequently for Christianity Today and many other periodicals, newspapers, ones you would know, The Atlantic, Washington Post. Honored to have you on the show today, Karen. It's an honor to be with you. Awesome. Well, you've written a new book, and that's why I want to get you on here. I was just chatting with you about the fact that I am a book nerd. So uh, my wife is actually a literature teacher. Uh, I was the uh, son of two teachers. One was a drama teacher. My mom was an English teacher. And uh, so I saw this book come through and I read, like I just read uh, Hornby's 10 Years in the Tub, right? Which is a, a book about books, all the books he read. Um, <laughs> Louis L'Amour, uh, uh, Thoughts of a Wandering Man, you know, the, all these books from a young age. I've loved books about books. So I am a book nerd a bibliophile, and you've written this. It's called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And I I see you got a forward by Leland Reichen. I even have his book on books. So uh, (laughs) I was super excited to delve into this. Tell us really quickly, just give us an overview. What's the book about? Well, as you said, it's a book about books, but it's um, it has a, a framework that I use, which is to talk about the classical virtues, uh, which is really the basis of the good life, which is where the subtitle, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, comes from, Um, but looking at those virtues through the lens of a different work of literature. So I have 12 chapters, each one focused on a different virtue and a different work of literature that can teach us about that virtue. I love it. And you know, it's funny because uh, there are parts in, in the New Testament where Paul talks about uh, that we should be lovers of the good, right? And when you look at that, he's talking about virtue. And that was a very much like an ancient world 
you know, you got Plato, you know, his, his studies on virtue. Can you unpack that a little bit and, and what the importance of virtue are? Because we're a culture that we don't value that the same. We know that virtue, we find that kind of language in the scripture. But what does it really mean? That is such an excellent question because we really have lost the sense and meaning and significance of the virtues. Um, and so I go all the way back to, I draw mainly from Aristotle. And of course he, he was a pre-Christian. Um, and, uh, you know, so he was, uh, you know, an ancient Greek philosopher, but actually I think, you know, um, common grace and natural revelation, um, teach us that wherever we find truth, it's God's truth. And I think Aristotle gave us a lot of wisdom about yeah. virtue. And he basically, I mean, another word for virtue in the way that Aristotle used it is simply excellence. Mm. I mean, Aristotle was not only a philosopher, he was a scientist, and he basically looked at um, all kinds of species, including the human uh, species, and identified the qualities that make human beings most excellent in fulfilling their purpose or their telos as human beings. And so he identified things like courage and justice and um, temperance as the things that make a human being most excellent. And he also said that though having those virtues, having those quality, those character traits that are become natural to us because we've practiced them so much, those are what constitute the good life. It's not material possessions. It's not success. It's actually being a good person. Um, And the other thing that Aristotle does with the virtues, which I think is so needed today, is he understands every virtue as being a mean or, um, you know, we call, the Greeks call it a golden mean or a moderation between two extremes, an extreme of deficiency of that quality and an extreme of excess. Hmm. And we live, in, we live in such a polarized time and such, everything we do is to excess that we've really forgotten that virtue really is moderation. I love it. And, and it's interesting because, you know, Paul really appeals to a lot of the, this was their culture. They understood some of this language. And here Paul introduces Christ as kind of, hey, you, you've had these ideals, but here's the one in whom these things were embodied. And, and, and so I, I love because what you're coming as, you're saying literature, you know, we talk in, in reform circles about the means of grace, right? The, the you know, mm-hmm. ways that God communicates his grace to us. And what I love about this is something that, that you propose and you say, you say finding the good life through great books. And you talk in the beginning about the way that things are communicated are important as the message itself. And you say that literature is one of the means that God can, can communicate these things to us. And before I have you respond to that, because I want you to unpack that a bit, it's an important premise to how you, you lay down each chapter, which is broken into like faith, and then you pick a book, right, or or hope, and then you pick a book, um, and and you you say how God might be speaking these things through this book. And I I know, you know, I I agree with you. All great truth is is God's truth. I remember going to a conference, and R. C. Sproul once said that when he gets to heaven, he wants to spend a thousand years listening to all the great uh, composers' works. Right, just exploring mm. and enjoying. Then he said, "Then I want to spend the next thousand years going through all the great works of literature, and then I want to spend the next thousand years going through all the masterpieces of art." Because he says, 
All of these things, I believe, will exist for eternity because they brought glory to the Creator. He says, I don't think all those things are done. I think they live on, that God breathed in some of Shakespeare. God breathed, and then you've got Tozer on his knees before God, reading Shakespeare on his knees, asking God to speak to him, you know, through everything he sees. And so, I love that you've taken that kind of, you know, I would say Solomon, his he compiled proverbs. Some of his proverbs mm-hmm. are Sumerian because he saw these in the in the in the world, and he said, "Well, this is truth." And I, we have those in the scripture now. So, talk to us a little bit about how literature is one of the ways that we can find the good life. Yes. Well, I actually I just love what you what you said. I'm still processing it, and I, um, yeah. Um, so, thank you for sharing that um, testimony from R.C. Sproul. Um, I had not heard that story, and I love it. Um, so in addition to the to the 12 virtues and the 12 different authors and works of literature I look at, I have an introduction, um, which, as you just mentioned, is devoted to really talking about, you know, the approach that I take and why, and also why reading literature, good literature and reading it well, is a gift of God and is um, can be used by him to form us in our character and our spirits. Um and that, that actually is one of the main points that I make in this introduction, the one that you referred to, that it's not just um, what we read that's as important as how we read it. Um, because literature, like all aesthetic experience, is something that forms us. I mean, it's the form that makes the difference. Um, and so we read literature differently than we read, or we should anyway, than we read a newspaper article or a blog post um, or even even a devotional, a straightforward kind of devotional, um, anything that's sort of giving us information. Um, we read literature as an aesthetic experience, which means that we're not just reading it to find out what happens. And by the way, there are you know there are entertaining novels that are written that are just about thing you know finding out what happens, and there's nothing wrong with those. But those would not generally be considered great literature. Great literature uses language in a way that recreates human experience. And so to read great literature well, we have to pay attention to the language. And that means we read a little bit more slowly. I recommend reading with a pen or pencil in hand to mark and underline and pause and reflect and you know make comments and interact with the text, just as hopefully we do with, um, with our Bibles, because it just helps us to learn more and engage more. And so literature we read for the experience that is recreated through the medium of language and words. And because we're experiencing something vicariously, um, some other world, some other person's experience, even if it's fictional, we're actually forming our character in the same way that we would um, in interacting with real people, because literary fiction requires us to make judgments, to make interpretations, to make predictions and assessments, all the things we have to do when we interact with people every day in real life all day long. We have to make those same kinds of kinds of judgments, and literary fiction recreates that experience, and that's why it forms our character the way that it does. I love that. You know, it's, it's funny because reading for me has been a huge part of my spiritual journey. I mean, I, I read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and then I read um, Pilgrim's Progress. These are the first two books I read as a Christian. And, mm. you know, I can remember 
just feeling like I grew. That's my train. Can't do anything about the train. Could edit that out, but I don't. (laughs) No, we live near a train too. And for a second, I thought, what's going on? My train. I don't feel my train. But, you know, it's funny because for me, I I found when I started reading, my spiritual life just catapulted um, ahead. And I I read, you know, I I was, like I said, I was raised around great literature. And my grandfather was was an author. And my dad was a playwright. And, of course, I'm an author now. And so, um, you know, but... It was just kind of in my blood, but then I stumbled across a book that was a gym in a secondhand bookshop, a book called Archives in Pasadena, May the Rest in Peace. But uh, it that store, that shop had a little book out of print from the 50s, and it was illustrations from great works of literature. I was a preacher, and I came across that, and I went, oh, now, what's this? And I started, it made me want to read because they were pulling out these things that were clearly biblical. Like Moby Dick has, you know, over 400 direct references to the Bible. You read that, it's like, it's like reading a, uh, I don't know, like a, a sermon, sermon upon a sermon within a sermon about a Bible study about it. You know, it's, it's crazy, that book. I mean, Frankenstein, all these great works of literature that I found just reinforcing all these things that the Bible teaches. And literature, great literature, I like that you bring up what great literature is, because I think you said it it recreates the human experience. And there's that famous quote that says, we read to know that we're not alone. And as I'm reading, um, I, I opened your book. Again, it's called On Reading Well, Karen Swallow Pryor. Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. As I read through, when I first got it in the mail, I opened it and I went, oh no, I haven't read any of these books. Because <laughs> I started from the back. I, I did the, you know, the Japanese way here where I flipped from the back through and I'm like, haven't read that, haven't read that. And then I found, when I got to the beginning, okay, I've read about half of these. And I, do you mind if I just go through a few of these chapters here? And Oh, um, please do. Yes, that would be great. So just to, to kind of, you break it up into cardinal virtues, theological virtues, heavenly virtues. And I was really excited to see The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which I think is just such a, a phenomenal book. You had books by Jane Austen. You had Pilgrim's Progress. You had um, a lot of books I hadn't read. You had Flannery O'Connor, which my wife would do double backflips over. But <laughs> you had... Um, yeah, The Road. And I, I, I want to just tell everybody, if you haven't read that book, stop what you're doing, stop the podcast, go out, buy that book, and read it. I fell in love with that book. It haunted me. And I think great literature does that. Either it touches you, you you weep, it haunts you, it, it stays with you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that book. What made you pick The Road? And I noticed that you have it as hope. Yeah. Um, I mean, where where would you go to for hope that other than a dystopian post-apocalyptic world where most of the remaining humans are cannibals, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I never thought about it that way, but that is a very compelling argument. Um, well, there, and I just gave away part of the story, but I, I really do hope people will go out and read it. And by the way, I, I do want to say, um, just to answer a question that I get from a lot of people, um, they'll ask when they see the book, if they haven't read the works, should they read those novels before reading my chapter or not? And the answer is either way, it's fine. Um, I actually wrote each chapter 
with both audiences in mind, an audience that's read the work and is familiar with it, and an audience that has not read the work. So I want mm. these chapters to serve as introductions for anyone, perhaps, who hasn't read the work and wants to know if they want to. I try not to give everything away because I am just focusing on certain elements. These are not you know, comprehensive analyses of the right. works. Um, but all great, even if you have read it, all great literature by definition is rereadable. So, um, so go ahead and reread these works too. If you, I if agree you with you, <laughs> I agree one hundred percent because I read it and in particularly in that one, I didn't feel like you gave it away um, because it's not in that book. It's not so much what happens as how it happens. Yes, and you even you even kind of there's there's God is in that book all throughout in a weird way. And even in the ending, and you, you didn't really focus on that, which I, I was really kind of impressed. Like you do, you leave the breadcrumbs, but I, I feel like if you have read the book, you open up a whole new level, you enhance, like I got great enjoyment out of reading after the fact, but I did read some of them where I hadn't read the book. And guys, this is a meaty book. Like, uh, Karen has done, in an incredible, like this is a thinking person's book. This is going to teach you to think when you read this. So, okay, back to to the road <laughs> by Cormac McCarthy. So yeah, so I mean, first of all, you know, just the, part of the process of writing this book, I had to pick the books I was going to write about. I had to pick the virtues I was going to write about. Then I had to kind of match them up. And so to be completely honest about, you know, the writing process, I, I knew I was going to write about the road. So it was kind of like a puzzle because it's one of my favorite <laughs> books. So I'm like, okay, well, which virtue? So, you know, I, I have all these notes and all these scratches out in my writing journal, like which work and which virtue or whatever. And so, um, because I, I, there were a couple other virtues I could have matched with, with the road as well. Um, but it turned out to be hope, which I think uh, worked out well because, you know, the irony is, is that this is such a seemingly hopeless world. Mm. As I said, it's a post-apocalyptic world. It centers on, you know, a father and his son who don't even have names in the story. Um, and there are other people around, but most of them are not good guys. And most of it, as you said, this is a book of not about what happens, although that, you know, that's important and, and it is redemptive in the end. Um, but it's, it really is a story that's, you know, just like the title suggests the road, it, it is a journey and it is this journey of between this father and his son, the father is trying to, um, preserve his son's life. I mean, he's trying to preserve his own life, but in order to preserve his son's life and they're trying to move to a better place where there, there's a better chance at life. Um, and in this world that seems so bereft of hope and stripped of everything, almost everything that would be good, they find goodness. They find simple things. One of the most famous, I won't give it away, but one of the most famous scenes in the book involves, you know, a, a can of Coke that the father discovers. Mm. Um, they splash in water and um, find a, a, you know, a stash of food and eat like they haven't eaten in a long time. Um, and so I look at what Aristotle and actually even more so in this case, what Aquinas has to say about hope, because hope is one of the theological virtues. Um, and I think it's so timely for us today because for many reasons people feel hopeless. Um, and the definition that Aquinas gives of hope is that it regards a future good that is possible but difficult to obtain. And that's actually a pretty complicated definition because um, 
you know, it's not the same thing as like wishing for something or, I mean, you know, there, there's hope that we can have as a, as natural people, um, just because we are human beings. Um, but then there is also the hope that can come only from God, which is the hope that the Bible talks about. And what I talk about in this book where God is sort of a lingering, but not an obvious presence, but, but is not really directly part of the story is that this natural hope that all human beings can access um, prepares us in some way for the supernatural hope that can only come from God and only be received as a gift from God. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, as you um, really unpack, um, you know, the whole journey, I love the fact that you have, uh, you know, you're, you're interacting with this content on a, on a much deeper level. And, and one of the things I noticed was, you know, Cormac McCarthy, not just in this work, but in his, in, I've read, um, no, no country for old men, which, Mm -hmm. um, is also a film, which (laughs) tells you maybe I'm, maybe I'm choosing, I like to read the book before I see the movie. It's just kind of, I'm weird that way. Um, but, in, in both of those stories, God is, it, it's almost like he communicates um, God through his absence, um, mm-hmm. through his, his seeming like he's not there, which is why I like that you linked that book to hope, because at times the father really doesn't have hope. You know, he's got right. that gun in his pocket. Well, I, maybe I shouldn't talk about that. Let them read that part. <laughs> but, but, you know, that leads me to my next book that you, which I have to confess was Silence. Um, by Indo and a Japanese author and um, became a film as well. And uh, I, I'll confess, I didn't fully get that book. Um, and you mention in your chapter about how people really polarize on mm-hmm. there's like, you mentioned the three ways that people interpret the whole book, which I found fascinating because in my own mind, as I was reading the book, I was going back and forth. What's he trying to say? And Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you identify this and you use it as faith. But I literally felt, uh, Karen, that reading your chapter on that actually helped me understand this whole book and movie I watched. And I was like, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as an English professor, that makes me so happy. That's my job is to to help readers get it. So thank you. I'm very glad. It, it It was probably my favorite chapter in your book. For that reason, because it was really a breakthrough for me. And, and I, I got to be honest, I'm actually a little haunted by what I read in a good way, because it's really taken me to a deeper level of thinking about the mm-hmm. issues that you raise, which is a very complicated um, passage. But I love the quotes you had from Indo. But um, talk, talk to us a little bit about how uh, Indo brings out faith in that book. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I, I think I do give, give some, you know, a lot of way in this. It's hard to talk about without it, but there's still, again, this is also. So disclaimer, book. Um, yeah. spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But, but this, this book, like all great literature, it's, it's about how it's told, not just what is told. And that's something that is a little confusing for readers because it has a very complex narrative structure with differing points of view. And so that's something, you know, that I do help readers with. I talk about how those different points of view and the different um, genres uh, that 
are contained within the book helps can help us understanding those differences can help us to interpret the book. But the book is, you know, it, it's, it's simply about faith um, in, in a very, very obvious way where, where the main character is um, under threat of, you know, horrific torture um, is told to trample on the face of Christ, which in his culture would be, you know, an act of blasphemy and, and act of apostasy. And um, so he's faced with this test of, of um, actually, it's not even, you know, he, he's, other people are being threatened of being threatened with torture if he doesn't do this. And so the very simple question is, if he, if he does this, is he apostate? Has he actually lost his faith? And it's all sort of complicated because the character is is Jesuit. He's so he's Roman Catholic. The writer is Catholic, and and there is a different understanding of faith um, within Catholicism than within you know, my own Protestant tradition. And so that's something I had to grapple with because I'm writing, you know, as a Protestant and for I think mainly Protestant readers. Um, and yet, I still think that. Um, this idea of what constitutes true faith, what constitutes constitutes a saving faith, is a question. You know, we may not be 17th century Christians living in Japan being tortured for our faith, praise the Lord. Um, but we still, we still, even more so, as much so, we have to ask what is faith? Is my faith a saving faith or not? And so, I focus my exploration of the virtue of faith um, on that question. And, and of course, talk about this novel, which is so, it's so haunting, as you said, um, and so complicated. And, and it, it does not get all tied up in a neat bow uh, at all. Um, but that's one of the points that I make is that, that literature, because it does reflect real life, is complicated. Good literature shows the complexities of the human experience, and we shouldn't have to have all of the ants, all the things in the book tied up in a neat bow because our own lives are usually not like that either. And so that's one of the other great gifts of great literature is that it can cause us to exam ask these big questions about ourselves. Um, and so that's where the answers are really important more than in you know coming up with some solution to the questions posed by the characters and the plots. I agree. And I, and I love that you got inside the character's head, you got inside the author's head, which subsequently you got inside my head. So it was very good. But you know, um, the, the other one, and, and I really, I would say this is probably um, the first book I read, uh, it might've been Moby Dick, but the first book I read that really moved me um, to, to the point of, I read the book and put it down stunned. And that was Tale of Two Cities. Mm. Um, that final speech, that final kind of switcheroo, the, the, the climax <laughs> and the rest. I, I just, it, it, I was stunned at the end of that book. Never, never read it in high school, you know, never, never heard anyone talk about it. Just read it, uh, because I went on this, you know, kind of, geeky literature book nerdy thing that I do. I now do reading resolutions. So every year, like I might be like this year, I'm going to read all Hemingway this year. I'm going to read all Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's every once in a while becomes a, I'm going to read all the unread books and that never goes well. Yeah. In my library. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> always get defeated on that one. But your, um, 
you know, you, you talk about justice um, as linked, and this will be the final one that I, that I highlight specifically, um, but you, you talk about Tale of Two Cities there. Um, can you unpack the connection there and some of your findings? And guys, by the way, this is just, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg of this book, but I mean, it, it reminded me of when I'm reading things that see it. I mean, this is a big compliment, I know. Uh, Karen, but um, it 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 went to the level for me of the type of thinking I have to do when I'm reading C.S. Lewis. Um, I, I just felt it was that well written. Your book, it was super mm-hmm. excited, I devoured it. Boom! Couldn't wait for this interview. Um, just Aww. well done. But um, it it really Thank made you. me think, and and so I loved what I would consider the first great work of literature that just really affected me, really impacted me. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, thank you so much. That's a huge compliment, and I um, accept it very, very gratefully. Um, so, yeah, so I focus on the virtue of justice um, when I talk about A Tale of Two Cities. And and justice is different from all the other virtues because all of the other virtues pertain only to individual character. Um, hmm. Only a person can be courageous or temperate and or humble. Um, a person can be just and should be just, and it is an individual virtue. But justice is also a virtue of a community or, or a city or a polis um, in Greek terms. And so already it's complicated because we're talking about individual justice and then community justice. Um, so I had to, you know, try to address both of those aspects of justice. Um, and like all of the other virtues, um, just justice is a is a mean between two extremes. And it, when, when it comes to our, our own character, our character is just when we um, when we are exhibit the mean between selfishness and selflessness. Now, I mean, we think of selflessness today as kind of, oh, that's like you can never be too selfless. Well, that's actually not true, because if we're completely self-effacing or self-denigrating, then we really aren't um, being who we are supposed to be, you know, as, as human beings created in God's image. He has a call for us. He made us for a reason. So we should not erase ourselves completely. Um, and so that's just sort of a, the beginning framework for thinking about justice is that mean between selfishness and selflessness. And then when you magnify that, you know, on a communal scale and start weighing all of the competing interests and needs of, of everyone in a, in a community, community, it really gets complicated. And, um, you know, I'm just an English professor. I'm not like a political scientist, (laughs) but that's why I think that a tale of two cities addresses these tensions so well because, you know, if anyone knows anything about you know, the two cities, um, Dickens is writing about the French Revolution um, in Paris. And then he's also writing about, you know, the parallel events going on in his own country um, in England at the same time. Of course, he's writing a century later, um, but he shows these two two cities in um, parallel to one another because he's actually afraid that his own country, England, is mm. because of its excesses, is could repeat some of the same sins and excesses of the French Revolution. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, we know that the French Revolution started out with good intentions and, and an attempt to correct ju- injustices. But it went too far in the opposite extreme and ended up committing its own injustices. Which is very relevant today. 
Well, you know, I mean, the, the whole book makes you think. And, you know, um, if, if you were to talk to, you know, obviously our, our audience is church planners. And my thought is always that um, I want to shape the church planner to, and I've always told anyone who's going to be communicating the gospel, anyone who's going to be preaching, anyone who's going to be connecting with unchurched culture, that you need to, you know, we have this idea that everybody nowadays is a dumbed down idiot and they just binge Netflix all day. It's not true. Um, I lived for 12 years in uh, the UK. And, you know, when you met smart people, you met really smart people. I worked in factories and met people that the only thing they'd ever read in their entire life was a sports section in the newspaper on their factory break. Then I had other people where you'd ask them, what are you reading? They're saying, well, I'm reading a science fiction trilogy written in France, in French. And you're thinking, wow, you're a boffin. I, I don't even know where to begin with you. But our culture is, is such a cross section. And I think if we believe the lie that we're being told that everybody's just playing Candy Crush all day on their phone, um, then we're going to miss a cross section of culture who is longing, kind of like C.S. Lewis tapped into, for an intelligent, um, thinking man's gospel as well. Uh, not just to entertain you on stage and tell some funny jokes and throw the gospel in, but literally people that are, and I think this is part of our job as preachers, as, you know, I'm, I'm maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm answering my own question. I'm going to ask you the question. Um, <laughs> what would be the importance just specifically to our church planners in regards to grabbing hold of this great literature? And where would you tell someone to start? Great question. I mean, I agree. I agree with you that sometimes we are our expectations are set too low. Um, I mean, my own personal teaching philosophy is basically meet people where they are and take them where they should be. I mean, so you have it's both. You you don't just meet people where they are and leave them where they are. I mean, people do want more, um, but they sometimes need to be equipped and encouraged, um, and they need to actually have their appetites and desires formed in the right way, which is what virtue ethics is all about, is about, about creating good habits and practicing them enough so that those habits become part of our character. Well, if, you know, we're, we're, we are a community. And so when we, when we, we develop our habits and our appetites and our desires in community, so we can also change them in community. Um, and so, yeah, I did. I wrote this this book. Um, it is it is meaty. It, it is you know uh, I do teach um, literature at the at the college level, but I tried to write it in a way that would you know would attract those readers, but also be an introduction for those who feel intimidated by reading great literature, don't know where to begin or how to begin. I actually include discussion questions in the back. I'm, you know, very teacherly fashion um, so that could be used by an individual reader or in a book club. Um, there are also some great books out there by Christians about um, churches having book clubs and not, you know, not Bible studies. Those are, we need those, but I mean, actually as an extra activity, like studying literature together in order to glean these kinds of um, insights um, that God offers us through uh, these works that give glory to his truth and his creation. Uh, and so I think we have to just um, want to um, 
to have more. And then there are lots of tools out there and other people who do too. And we can equip one another and just step by step. And don't, you don't have to start with war and peace. Um, I mean, read The Great Gatsby or Ethan Frome, which are both short novels that I write about in uh, in this book that are, um, you know, are very deep and very profound, but not difficult to read, but yet still have lots of lots of great questions to ponder and think about. Um, and read something that you find interesting because there's so much great literature out there. Um, it really, it doesn't, you're not going to get as much out of it if you're not getting some pleasure from it. Um, but that also doesn't mean shying away from a challenge. Um, you, it may take you longer. You might have to reread. I reread sentences all the time. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, there's more there than I first glanced. I've got to reread that. It's not a race. Reading great literature is not a race. It's not fast food. It's, you know, it's a several course gourmet meal. It's an investment, really. And it's an investment in your mind, in your soul. And I believe connections with the lost. You know, just a, a little side note. I, I accidentally planted a church years ago in a Borders Books doing a reading group in the Starbucks there. So oh, wow. I'm a huge believer in reading books together with non-believers to connect and to, to talk through these things. So I love the idea of using this as even a reading group book. I think that would that would work. In my experience, that would definitely be something that could be done. So, guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. My guest today has been Karen Swallow Pryor. The book is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, 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 where can people connect with you if uh, they, they want to reach out and you know, tell you how much they appreciate it or even find some other stuff you've, you've written? Sure. Um, I have a website, karenswallowprior.com. And I also, I'm, I'm on Twitter way more than I should be. Um, and it's K.S. Pryor, K-S-P-R-I-O-R. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for Hardcore Church Planting. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. Hey, I want to give a big shout out to our number one sponsor. They've been with us for years. I know them personally. Uh, the founder is Josh Henry. He is an ex-church planner. If you wonder why we have so much fun with SimplifyChurch.com's uh, ads, it's simply because we love these guys. We believe in them. I have used them. Gosh, as a church planner, I found them and have been using them for donkey's years. And if you don't know, that means a really long time. So head on over to SimplifyChurch.com. They're going to help you do all the stuff that you need to do, but nobody taught you to do in seminary. Things like bookkeeping, uh, payroll, um, you know, uh, dealing with the IRS, making sure you're compliant, sending end of year uh, donor receipts. If you haven't done that yet, tis the season. Uh, you have until the end of January to get those out to your people. So make sure you head on over to SimplifyChurch.com and let them simplify your church. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.